Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number six. I've got a really fascinating, fascinating episode for you guys today. My guest is Dr. Tommy Wood, medical doctor, PhD, neuroscience researcher specializing in studying brain trauma in newborns, who also has a passion for movement, nutrition, and lifestyle factors, and how they influence longevity and healthy aging. I've known Tommy for a few years now, so if you want to go back to season one, five, six years ago, season one, you can hear Tommy and I talking all about the athlete's gut, so the athlete gut microbiome, and interestingly, a lot of those tips and tactics from from back then still really apply today, so definitely check that out. In this episode, Tommy and I discuss the state of progress when it comes to cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. Are today's treatments having a meaningful impact? We'll dive into Tommy's recent paper on a new model of cognitive decline. He'll touch on the difference between age-related cognitive decline and age-related dementia. When it comes to your genetics, does APOE really matter when it comes to Alzheimer's? Tommy explains the parallels between muscle tension versus brain tension for health. He'll talk also about brain training games. Do they really work? If so, which one is the best? We'll talk about the use of CGM devices in athletes, blood sugar levels, and brain health, the best lab tests to aim for to be able to monitor and track your progress, and just a whole bunch more. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Athlete Performance Nutrition, who are sponsoring today's show. Basketball season is back in full swing in the NBA and ramping up in college and high school campuses. Performance nutrition for basketball players is essential for supporting training, recovery, performance, and overall health. You can level up your nutrition game by joining the Basketball Performance Nutrition course this fall. You'll learn from longtime NBA sport dietitian Marie Spano on key strategies for fueling basketball players, in training, in game, and for recovery. You'll learn from leading sports scientist Frank Garcia at Barcelona FC in Europe all about body composition and energy demands for basketball players. And perhaps the most important skill, you'll also learn key mindset and communication tools to effectively coach your athletes with expert NBA performance psychologist Dr. Alex Auerbach as he discusses the three mindsets of elite performance and leveraging relationships for performance. You'll also get access to monthly live roundtables with experts and much, much more. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com, use the promo code BPN2022, that's BPN2022, to save 25% off the cost of the course, to sharpen up your performance nutrition skills this fall, and keep leveling up as a coach or practitioner. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com, use the promo code BPN2022 to save 25% and join us this fall. Awesome, let's get rolling my conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood. Tommy, really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and great to connect again. Yes, yeah, uh, great to be back. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, I didn't mean for it to be so long. If people are just <laughs> tuning in, uh, season one, I think episode 15 or 16, we had Tommy on talking all about the athlete gut, um, you know, really fascinating stuff. And so if you want to get more into Tommy's background, we talk about it obviously in the intro there. So maybe a great place to start, Tommy, is, is to give us an update on on what you're doing these days in terms of research and, and practice. Sure. So, so it has been a, a a few years since whatever it was that I said about myself back then. <laughs> yeah. uh, but since then, I've become a, a full-time faculty. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington. Uh, my main work is running a neuroscience lab where we look at ways to treat the injured brain. Um, and we do a whole range of brain injuries. So neonatal and pediatric brain injuries. That's where I did the, the arena where I did my PhD. Uh, but we also do some work in traumatic brain injury uh, with some uh, some work funded by by the military, and then um, increasingly interested in how um, pretty much the entire uh, life course then affects long term cognitive function. And and sort of what we've learned recently is that basically there's this trajectory of your brain health across the entire lifespan that starts right when you're born, or maybe even before you're born, and then all these things happen over time that can then affect uh, the long-term out the long-term outcome, long-term cognitive function, risk of dementia, 
Um, and what's good, we think, is that there are lots of modifiable things that we can do, right? It's not this like fixed risk that we have to then just be stressed about because there's nothing we could do about it. There's there's a lot that we can do about it. Um, and so that's really where my focus has been is trying to figure out ways to keep your brain healthy and happy and functional for your entire life. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing area and, you know, excited to dig into the paper that you've just written because, you know, as you know, massive investment in, in cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's disease over the last decade or two. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of uh, findings and around mechanisms and whatnot, but not a lot of progress as it relates to to the patient and the outcome. Yeah, And so, you know, the paper here, Demand Coupling Drives Neurodegeneration, a Model of Age-Related to Cognitive Decline and Dementia. So can you frame things for listeners to get us started? You know, why this new proposed model? Sure. So as you kind of uh, intimated, and as um, you know, people who are interested in dementia or Alzheimer's disease probably know, uh, is that we've spent decades at this point focusing on one specific area or therapeutic target, which is amyloid. Um, or amyloid plaques. So uh, amyloid uh, is a protein in the brain. Um, it comes from a precursor that can be chopped up in lots of different ways, depending on the, the downstream function that your brain wants. But what essentially happens is that in, in people with advanced dementia or in other types of brain injury, so you might see it after a traumatic brain injury, you get this misfolding and accumulation of this uh, amyloid protein, and then it becomes something we call a plaque. And you can kind of see it. The, the The reason why we focus on this is because you can see it on a on a slide of the yeah. brain. So some the person dies, you chop up their brain, you look at it under a microscope, and you can see you can see these uh, proteins. And when uh, Alzheimer Alzheimer's was originally described by Al Dr. Alois Alzheimer, um, it the it was a dementing process happening early in life. Uh, and there's one particular patient who was the first patient. Uh, and what we think now. Uh, although there's still some discussion about it, as there is for most things. What we think now is that um, the patients he was describing and were then described in the first case reports uh, were due to familial or monogenic or early onset Alzheimer's disease. So one gene um, that gets mutated and then you, you essentially get Alzheimer's disease or dementia in your 30s and 50s is kind of this very sort of relatively quick, uh, rapid, rapid yeah. uh, decline and in cognitive function. And it's a very sort of homogeneous uh, process. Um, however, what most people are concerned about is not that. Uh, it's what we now call late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which is more than 95% of Alzheimer's disease. And that has a whole bunch of different things that that might be involved. So uh, it's it's if there's any genetic component, it's polygenic uh, and and complex. You know, there are some genes that people focus on a lot, like ApoE4 or your apolipoprotein E genotype, which we can talk about if you want. Uh, but then lifestyle is important, um, and and people have a really struggle to kind of fit together all these potential risk factors. Nutrient status is important. Uh, Toxic exposure like uh, pollution expo is, is important. Metal, Chronic stress yeah. is important. Sleep. So like all these things uh, are important there. And it's very heterogeneous. So um, there's this uh, phrase that people say is that once you've seen one patient with Alzheimer's disease, you've seen one patient with Alzheimer's disease. Which, <laughs> For sure. Which, which kind of tells you. multifactorial. Yeah. What, what is actually going on? If exactly. Pause quickly. Uh, Tommy yeah. and pin it with that APOE. Can you go mm. down that road a little bit? Because that's definitely one with the rise of getting people's genetic tests run from a nutrition standpoint. Mm. This is often the one that clients will have run. And then as they come into a practitioner's office or a doctor's office, this is a conversation starter around, am I, am I at greater risk? What does all this mean? And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a great point because um, it's something that we've become very focused on, even though I'm not sure how helpful it is and for, for a few reasons. That's a good way to sum so, it up. <laughs> so in uh, modern westernized populations where, where we've done these studies, so the US or you know, the UK or, or parts of Europe, you see that people who have either one or two copies of ApoE4, so there are three different um, genotypes for this uh, SNP. It's two, three, and four, and you can, and you obviously have two copies, right? So you can have one or two copies of four, or one or two copies of uh, two or three, and some combination of them. Mm -hmm. And if you have 
one or two copies of ApoE4, your odds, odds, which is the probability divided by one minus the probability, um, which is difficult for people to get their head around unless they bet on sports because everything is is <laughs> then is, it's dialed is, in. <laughs> yeah, then it's dialed in. They know exactly what you mean. But the odds of Alzheimer's disease are increased maybe six to twentyfold. Um, depend, you know, if you have ApoE4 in that population. Um, however, you know, you would also say, and this is said commonly that not everybody with ApoE4 gets Alzheimer's disease. And most people who have out, who get Alzheimer's disease don't have ApoE4, right? So it's not this definite mm-hmm. significant risk factor. It just increases the probability or odds. And what's interesting is that there seems to be um, a gene environment interaction that we don't understand fully. Uh, but when you look at non-Westernized populations, so uh, Central African populations, Central American populations, indigenous American populations, ApoE4 is not a risk factor for cognitive decline. Interesting. So there's there in my mind that means that there's something about having having ApoE4 and being put in the modern environment, which includes generally disordered sleep, um, lack of movement, poor quality diet, right, mm. uh, air pollution, right, a whole bunch of things. So so it may um, accelerate your um, negative responses to that environment. And it's because in the brain after an injury or with these sort of chronic exposures, it seems to enhance the inflammatory response. It's sort of intimately tied into um, the the immune function as well as uh, lipid uh, metabolism. So the it is a risk factor and it you know in those populations it's thought to contribute maybe four to six percent of your total risk um however certainly not um something that's definite and is probably driven by the environment and the environment we can modify um and i can't tell you exactly what it is in the environment that you have to modify but obviously those things you know people who listen to this podcast they probably uh, move more than your average person. They probably think about their sleep more than the average person, right? They think about their diet. So, so I think most of that stuff is being is being modified uh, in a beneficial way. Um, another thing that's important is that when you tell people about their genotype in general, it doesn't change their behavior, but it can <laughs> increase their stress. Mm-hmm. So what so what happens is so if if at the population level you were testing everybody for ApoE4, most people won't do anything about it like they won't modify their environment or their lifestyle but they will get stressed about the fact that there are increased risk of alzheimer's disease and we know that chronic stress is a risk factor for alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. so you've almost created a problem that nobody's going to fix um other than there are very there's a very small percent of the population who are sort of very goal-oriented type a and you like you have this you do this to fix it and they're like great i'll do it no problem but that's not most people I'm thinking two things there. I mean, one of them, when we think about, obviously you mentioned the athletes, the performance staff and the coaches, obviously older, 40s, 50s, 60 beyond. And oftentimes, you know, their movement and nutrition, ironically, being in that environment isn't what we would <laughs> like it to be. And so I think there's yeah. hopefully a good chance to nudge uh, some behaviors there. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you're still right in the sense of tests, even when we look at athletes of what we're testing and what the implications then can be, particularly on the genetic level of then, feeding into this sort of worry, whether it's glucose monitors or, or whatnot, that then start to actually trigger a problem that we didn't actually have in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's 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 more evidence for a nocebo effect mm-hmm. from genetic testing than there is for any benefit uh, in terms of people modifying th- their behavior. Uh, so you have to be very, very specific about what information you're giving and who you're giving it to and whether they'll actually act upon it in the right way. Yeah, that's great advice. And if we think about some other observations from whether it's an evolutionary lens or population level, you know, what are some other aspects that have really, you know, contributed to this demand-driven model for age-related cognitive decline? Sure. So uh, where we kind of ended up uh, with, with this paper uh, was so I, so I mentioned uh, all the you know all those things that are, are maybe important for late onset Alzheimer's disease, and the the fact that you know we've we focused really at like the the pathological level like what can you see in the brain of somebody who has alzheimer's disease and we mentioned amyloid there's another protein that we're 
increasingly interested in uh, called tau, which becomes phosphorylated and creates what we call neurofibrillary tangles. So again, this is just a different type of protein aggregation uh, in the brain. And when you have a bunch of amyloid and a bunch of tau uh, tangles, they can cause damage to, mm-hmm. to the neurons. Like that. But that's like at the advanced stage. Up until that point, the amount of protein, these proteins you have in your brain doesn't really correlate with your symptoms, doesn't really correlate with your disease progression. And when we've developed drugs or monoclonal antibodies to target something like an amyloid plaque, we can reduce the number of plaques in your brain, but it doesn't make any difference to your long-term outcomes. So wow. in the in the paper, that's, we, that's we a big argue, statement too, right? Because that's right. been the folk, the area of focus for the last decade, two decades. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, in terms of yielding outcomes, it is amazing that it's not actually providing that benefit. And, you know, I have to say that maybe just it wasn't the right drugs and may, maybe I'm wrong and the next one will work, <laughs> right? That's that's always, a, you know, that's always a possible, that's always a possibility. Um, but we essentially uh, argue in the paper that those two types of Alzheimer's disease shouldn't come under the same umbrella term, right? We shouldn't mm-hmm. call them a, a Alzheimer's disease anymore because the, the one is like very specific and the other is just so heterogeneous and different that it, we probably need a different way of thinking about it. Um, and so we called it age-related cognitive decline and then age-related dementia, just to kind of separate it out. And then we sort of put together the, the, the sets of evidence, which are like molecular and societal and, you know, even randomized controlled trials to basically suggest that the most important thing for long-term cognitive function is cognitive demand. Like how, how much are you challenging your brain? Um, and I mean this in the way that um, it's not, you know, we all think that we're challenging our brain all day, right? We're super busy. We're super stressed. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. I'm, I'm talking like specific skill development, things you can work on for like 20 or 30 minutes. And like, that's it. You're like pushing the boundaries of your skill and, and learning. That's the kind of stuff that we do when we develop our brains in the first place, right? That's how babies learn motor skills, social skills, language skills. And those are the things that we just stop doing uh, as we get older. But to kind of make people, I think, understand it a little bit better, we liken it to exercise. Mm-hmm. So imagine uh, you lead the per- like a pristine lifestyle, no pollution, um, perfect diet, you get plenty of sleep, um, but you're not going to build any muscle mass unless you, are you enough protein, you're not going to build any muscle mass unless you apply me- mechanical tension to your muscles, right? Like sure. me- mechanical tension is, is, is king if you're trying to get bigger and stronger. And I think the same thing is said of the brain. You can put the brain in the perfect environment, but if you don't ask it to do anything, it won't develop connections. It won't develop resilience. It won't be plastic and a bit and and be able to respond. And there's a whole bunch of evidence that says that you know the best way to de- to develop these connections, to de- uh, develop the brain, to make it stronger, more resilient, is to challenge it. Um, and in uh, rodents, you can do that by changing the their environment. Um, and this will work even if, even in the setting of uh, other toxins or other other problems, right? You still, just like if you haven't optimized your diet and sleep, you'll still get stronger if you go to the gym, yeah. right? You could improve the response by improving nutrient status and sleep and recovery. But the thing that really matters is challenge. Um, and then in humans, we see um, sort of, I guess, uh, again, resi- I guess again, resilience or reduced risk of um, a cognitive decline uh, in people who are bilingual, um, in uh, people who do particularly coordinative movement, so movement that has uh, like a balance component, probably because of the extra cognitive demand. Um, Things uh, like tai Chi or Tai Chi, yoga. Um, you know, I'm sure board sports and other things, slacklining, right? Nobody's done a study on that, but the the, the principles. You don't fall too much, you're good to go. Yeah, as long as you don't hit your head when you when you fall over. Um, and then the the sort of I guess the the best evidence that that I really have for it, at sort of a, a large population level, is that in multiple population studies, the earlier you retire the earlier you suffer from cognitive demand, uh, cognitive decline. Um, and that's probably because, again, in modern westernized populations, most of your cognitive demand comes from your daily work. Yeah. Um, and so as soon as you remove that, 
you know, most people don't retire and then go and travel and learn a language and take up yoga. They sit at home and watch TV and then occasionally do a Sudoku because they think that that's going to be enough <laughs> yeah. to challenge, challenge, challenge their brain. So basically from sort of the mechanistic uh, level all the way up to the societal level, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that really the most important thing is how much you challenge your brain. And there's all the other things matter, right? Just like, you know, we'll go back to exercise because I think that that helps people really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that if you're sleep deprived, you won't gain as much um, muscle and strength in, in response to a, a specific training program, right? And the, the brain is the same. We know sleep is critical for plasticity and consolidation and also for long-term cognitive uh, health, as is nutrient status and avoiding significant stresses and hormonal status. And all that stuff is incredibly important, but the primary driver really seems to be cognitive demand. And that's kind of what we've outlined uh, or proposed in the paper. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And if we start on the the music side of things, you know, with music, if you are someone who is more proficient or say a professional musician as you get older versus let's say I want to start playing piano at 40, 50, 60 in terms of cognitive demand, is that going to be the same? Or you would think that perhaps the, the, the newbie would have to be obviously higher cognitive demand to actually get, uh, learn, learn some of those new skills. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually a, a study that does partially answer this question. Um, uh, a number of studies have used um, uh, an MRI scan followed by this machine learning algorithm that's called brain age. So basically, you do a scan of your brain, and then you feed it to this algorithm, and you say, how old does this brain look? Okay. Right, it's had a whole, you know, thousands of like training scans. Yeah. And then you can look at the difference between how old your brain looks versus how old you are chronologically, right? And they did a study with musicians and they looked at their brain age relative to their you know actual age in years and all musicians had a lower brain age than their actual age in years wow. but amateur musicians had an even younger brain compared to <laughs> looking brain compared wow. to professional musicians and the thought was that this is because it's harder for an amateur right once you're a professional once you've learned a skill it's no longer a challenge uh, so uh, amateur musicians are worse at music, but because they do it, they're getting more of a challenge. And that seems to be reflected in, in then how their brain looks on a brain scan. And I imagine then the crossover to language would be similar then. Obviously, someone yeah. learning Spanish at 40, 50, 60 versus someone who's already bilingual, there, there could be a similar benefit there for them as well. Yeah, the, I don't think they've looked at it in the same way, but there are there are a number of strands around language. So people who grow up by bilingual and then continue to use both languages seem to have, you know, protection of the various tracts in the brain that are associated with, you know, long, long-term function. Um, and I think, you know, all the evidence kind of suggests that while there is some specificity in the challenge that you apply, uh, say like memory skills versus motor skills versus language skills are going to affect, you know, different parts of the brain. Yep it seems like this sort of translates across skills as well. So what happens in musicians in amateurs versus professionals, you know, should translate to people picking up a language later in life, um, you know, versus somebody who's been bilingual all their life. And then that second language isn't as much uh, of a challenge. Um, But what, then comes up when I talk about this is people like, well, my brain is old. I just can't learn new things. <laughs> um, and this is, this is right. It is a good excuse. Um, but this is this like story that we've been told for which there yeah. isn't that much evidence. Like there are, there like are a sample of the genetics before where you tell people yeah. that a thing is a thing or that you run slow and all of a sudden it, it manifests yeah. itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there are some studies that, that look at, um, so, so one of the ways that we we know that the adult brain brain is plastic, and by plastic I mean that it, it adapts and can change to, to its environment. It's not this fixed thing that we just like lose cells over time, which is kind of what we've been told. But they've done these studies where, uh, where they um, and they've done them in animals as well, but they have done them in humans where you attach prism glasses uh, to the person, or they put um, glasses on that have a prism in, so it shifts yeah. where the light comes in. So okay. you no longer understand where you are in physical space. Um, uh, and in, in, so like they've done us one of the original studies, they started in Berkeley, um, uh, in, in like the 18, in the late 1890s. Um, and then oh. sort of like there were, there were more, more, more done later in, in, in Innsbruck. Uh, uh, but 
if you put uh, glasses on somebody, an, an adult, and it completely flips upside down, right? So everything is upside down. Within six days, they're able to interact with the environment completely normally. So you've completely Incredible. changed the map of, of your body and physical space in your brain within a few days. Um, and then they can, they've done shorter term prism experiments where you put these prism glasses on and then you have to like have people throw balls at a target and older people sort of like in their sixties and seventies, it takes them a few more tries to get it right. But within like a, a reasonable time course, you know, it just, it's just like a few more minutes. They're still adapting just like a younger person would. Mm -hmm. So even though some of the processes may be a little bit slower, when you're older, your brain is still completely able to adapt to these challenges. So I would reject this idea that your brain is this fixed thing and you're older, it doesn't work anymore. And you just, and, and I would, right. And it's stuck. And instead I'd say, well, it's probably feels like it's stuck because you just haven't been using it. You're a um, stuck. <laughs> right. Yeah, ex exactly. And just, you know, I, I think there's, there's something to be said for acknowledging that actually my brain can do amazing things. I just have to make sure that I ask it to do those things and then you, it will adapt over time. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the Performance Nutrition Podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month into your inbox, join the Athlete Performance Nutrition community by signing up at performancenutritionpodcast.com in the black box. That's Athlete Performance Nutrition monthly newsletter. Sign up at the performancenutritionpodcast.com in the black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And, and following that, you know, there's obviously been a lot of apps and things in the last decade around brain training. Mm. Do those and you know, you know, puzzles, various things, are those actually going to elicit some of the increase in demand that you're looking for, or only specific, you know, forms of of that type of strategy? I think it will probably depend um, on the degree of of difficulty. Um, there are some brain training systems. So the one that has the best evidence is called Brain HQ okay. by Posit Neuroscience. Um, and this is one that uh, if people have heard of Dale Bredesen, he's he's mm -hmm. developed these really quite impressive protocols for people with cognitive impairment to try and reverse some of those processes. And one of the things that he uses is Brain HQ because it's sort of it's on a computer, it's um, systematized, you can sort of track progress over time. Whereas learning a language is kind of a a slightly more nebulous thing, right? Yeah, you, it's, it's, it's yeah ex exactly. Um, and so, and Brain HQ does have some evidence to say that if you do that, even though it's sort of abstract games and tests and things, it has some like carryover to real world executive function and and, and memory and function as well. So, some of these cool. these training modalities do seem to work. Um, and I, I recently had somebody ask me about video games, um, and, and I don't think. I don't think video games have been tested in such a rigorous way, but if you think about um, fine motor skills, reaction time, spatial memory, um, problem solving, so. yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that can come from video games. And now I'm just like justifying my love of Zelda, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> bias there, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think some of these things re really can be beneficial. Um, there is a possibility, and uh, you know, it really is just a possibility that. You know, our brain sort of adapted to be really good at certain functions. So we talked about motor skills, social skills, language skills. And I think that there's something inherently human about those skills. So you, there may be additional benefits from doing that. You know, we know there's additional benefits from doing things in a, in a social yeah. setting. So maybe you're learning a language in a group and you're, you're getting multiple benefits there. Um, so, so lots of different things can can provide this challenge. And I think that's what's good. People can do what, what they like. Uh, but there may be a possibility that, you know, part of a group setting or some of these more sort of like core human uh, skills and activities may provide additional benefit. But that's sort of hypothetical. I definitely want to come back to the social connection part. But before we do that, let's go circle back to the exercise because a lot of people will be mm. interested in, you know, how much exercise, obviously, of a very athletic population listening <laughs> in. Is it like yeah. more jacked, more fit? The progression <laughs> keeps going. And for the coaches listening in, there's sort of the minimum effective dose group. It's like, okay, what, what's the least I need to do to get, start getting some significant benefits to the brain? Yeah, the, 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 that's a great question. Um, and there have been a few sort of large meta-analyses, meta-regressions that have looked at this recently, specifically with relation to cognitive decline. And it, it seems like 
basically the, the standard government guidelines of 30 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity, that's probably your minimum effective dose. Okay. Um, so like a 30 minute brisk walk is is where is is probably enough to start seeing benefits. So so probably not that much, right? Something that's eminently doable by most people. And again, it it may not matter that much whether it's walking or lifting weights, right? It, it's when they sort of put them together, it seems like they're having a, an equivalent effect. Okay. Um, obviously, there's uh, you, you might get some, you know, so if you're doing resistance training, you might get slightly different like neuromuscular um, uh, benefits based on those connections. And they've done studies, the, the SMART trial, which, which was in um, individuals in their 70s, and they had them do either res a resistance training program or a cognitive, tra a cognitive training program or both. Um, and they saw significant benefits with the resistance training group in particular, uh, but the cognitive training added benefits in like the memory centers in the brain and in, in the hippocampus. So there is, like I said, there is some specificity, but like even lifting weights uh, is enough to do that. And they did, it was like three times a week, uh, six exercises, three sets of eight, like something okay, super, pretty, super pretty basic, right? Yeah. Yeah. N nothing, nothing heroic. Um, like I said earlier, there is some evidence to suggest that coordinative movement is 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 better, um, and so they've done studies where they compared a similar intensity of exercise, but they did like circuit training versus dancing, mm -hmm. and the dancing was associated with uh, more improvements in certain areas of the brain, probably because it's a coordination component. Yeah, I guess your brain trying to orient yourself in space has got to yeah. be a, a survival element to yeah, that yeah, to be exa able to exactly. actually do and maintain and, and be proficient no yeah that, that's exactly how i think about it is that your sort of orientation in space is is like this existential thing that's required for survival so yeah. that's more of a your, your brain is going to work harder to figure that out rather than you know just doing some bench press Though i'm a big fan of bench press but um exactly well, that's a, a funny thing to wrap your head around isn't it because <laughs> the level of effort that someone would prescribe to a bench press versus a dance would be very different to yeah. what you know what you're suggesting here obviously from a cognitive standpoint we're getting almost the opposite effect um now the conversation on exercise tends to lead down to things like blood sugar control mm. obviously in the general population you know with the overweight obesity or over fat group making up two-thirds of the population you know is we, we see with diabetics obviously higher blood sugars higher insulin greater risk of things like cognitive decline dementias you know how strong is that connection and uh you know kind of where does it fit in with the model here yeah that's i mean blood sugar control i think is is critical for a for a number of of health outcomes certainly from an, an associational standpoint in like you know there's a separate set of studies where in diabetics they do sort of very stringent versus more relaxed blood sugar control that doesn't seem to have much of an effect um in itself but you know trying to prevent yourself from getting pre-diabetes uh you know that's i think going to have a significant impact on your long-term health and they've also they've shown that in individuals with normal blood sugar control versus pre-diabetics versus diabetics basically as you go up the diabetes scale your rate of brain atrophy uh, increases mm -hmm. so the worse your blood sugar control, you know, the more likely you are to experience cognitive decline over time and the faster that happens. Um, muscle tissue is your best glucose sink. Mm -hmm. you know, the majority of your blood glucose ends up going into muscle tissue, but you need to create some kind of like pull through, right? You need to have Use the it. muscles be doing something to, to demand that glucose. Um, so so I think that, the, the, you know, and, and we see again in sort of more controlled studies, the more muscle you have and the more active it is, the greater the glucose uptake you have, even at rest. So you you create this really nice buffer of blood sugar if you have muscle and you use it. Um, when you then think about sort of other aspects, I, I, I don't believe anybody's said, well, if we do resistance training and we see how much your blood sugar improves, how much does that correlate with um with cognitive function i don't think anybody's answered that question so at this point we're kind of like it's a really good idea we think it's going to be important um but when you when you look at sort of large observational studies uh they've done some where they look at um brain so again the amount of brain you have in your skull you know how much brain have you lost <laughs> relative to the size the size of your skull um and then they've also looked at cognitive function in adults based on body composition okay and it seems that 
rather than BMI or fat mass or anything like that, which is what we tend to focus on. Mm-hmm. Muscle mass is a much better predictor of how much brain you have in your skull and also of cognitive function. So of all the body composition metrics, muscle mass is the best predictor of cognitive function when they've looked at that. Wow. That's, uh, that's really something, particularly with the aging populations and how we might screen and, and test. I was going to pick your brain on, you know, when we look at testing, you know, fasting glucose, HA1Cs, uh, calculating home IRs versus some of the, you know, newer technologies of now people using CGMs and this is, you know, sort of healthy individuals. Mm. And oftentimes what I see in my practice is sort of this over extrapolation of, of what's happening to, to certain meals or, or kind of a hyper focus. Yeah. Um, wondering your, your thoughts there of what kind of tests, you know, you might use and, and your thoughts on the kind of the CGM and, uh, let's call them sort of otherwise healthy individuals. Yeah, I think CGMs are super, super interesting. Um, and what we've learned in the last, you know, five or 10 years, you know, particularly the last five years, is that how one individual responds to a carbohydrate-based meal is completely different from the person next to them, mm-hmm. right? The The idea of glycemic index and glycemic load should just be torn up and thrown away because it just doesn't, you know, it it doesn't hold true relate to, world, to, right? to the real world. Exactly. So like you and I could eat exactly the same meal and have vastly different blood glucose responses. And it's related to other health metrics and you know, when we eat it during the day and whether we've exercised yeah. and like our gut microbiota and our genetics and, and all this kind of stuff. So the your variability in your blood sugar, so like whether you have big spikes, um, that can be measured in multiple ways. One of them is called MAGE, mean amplitude of glycemic excursions. I think that does relate to long-term health outcomes. We haven't mm-hmm. done any studies where we change that in an individual and then see, you know, and, and we focus just on the the, the blood sugar spikes and then we, we see long-term improvements. Um, there is one study relevant to that um, in people with cognitive decline, where it was, but they had diabetes. And they, it was a two-year study looking at dipeptidylpeptidase 4 inhibitors, which increase the number of incretins uh, or like prolong the half-life of incretins. So mm-hmm. things like GLP-1, yeah, GIP, yeah, in the gut. And that they showed that your the, the, the size of these spikes of blood sugar, MAGE, was the best predictor of an individual's cognitive function at baseline. And again, these are older individual, individuals, 60s and 70s. Interesting. And then two years later... The, the more that the mage had improved, the better your cognitive function had, had, had improved. Uh, so there was, seems to be an association between how much you improve your blood sugar control, uh, include, particularly those spikes, yeah. relative to cognitive function. So I think that kind of gives us, you know, and, and obviously like they lost weight and all this other kind of stuff as well. So there's, it, it's, it's not a perfect, For like sure. I can't say it's causal, uh, but that kind of gives us a nice idea that you can change this and it's associated with, with improved outcomes. Um, we also know that like these blood sugar spikes can affect, you know, hunger and satiety and probably, and some studies have shown that they predict, uh, risk of diabetes or, you know, the amount of, um, atherosclerotic plaque you have in, in your coronary arteries. So like, you know, maybe risk of later heart attacks, but it's all kind of observational. Like what does your blood sugar look like right now? And what does your health look like right now? So we don't really know, can we intervene and, and change that course? They also generally do it in people who are already diabetic or pre-diabetic or have some significant health issues. Um, and so I'm not a huge fan of CGMs in a healthy population uh, because we just don't really know whether that information is that useful um, or what what I what I see more of is kind of going back to what we talked about genetics, which is essentially you you create this stress around food um which isn't necessarily warranted um and like if you have your cgm on continuously for months and months and months like some people do what happens is anytime you eat a food that's going to cause a blood sugar spike is you're going to think (laughs) this is going to cause a blood sugar spike you get stressed about it and it's going to make your blood sugar spike bigger um and there are studies that have shown that as well that if you uh, tell a diabetic this food has more sugar in it they'll get a bigger blood sugar spike even if there isn't more sugar in that food, right? Mm-hmm. So this, there's an anticipatory and stress-related effect that can increase blood sugar. Um, so I, I see a lot of what essentially looks like disordered eating around CGMs um, in this sort of like health-focused group 
Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like the the athlete or client's disposition is a big trigger in all of this, in the sense of if you have an individual who's sort of less likely to, for lack of a better term, overreact to these things, which is what we're describing, yeah. you know, having used this with various athletes over the last five or six years, you know, the successful ones that are picking up sort of these general trends of, which which may seem obvious to a practitioner of, <laughs> hey, if I add a lot of maple syrup to my oats, I'm going to have this huge excursion, and yeah. now I might actually change. Or I ate a bag of Oreos at midnight after a game and wow, I had a huge, um, uh -huh. but seeing it actually can help them to change behaviors. Yeah. And so in certain individuals, that sort of simple and, and encapsulated way can, can help. But what you're alluding to, what I've seen as well with various individuals is once we start going down that other road of trying to tailor everything or getting worried about what the interactions are, mm. this can really get out of control. Yeah. And, and so I think it can be, you know, I think blood sugar levels and blood sugar variability are important for long-term health. Mm -hmm. Like no, no doubt. I think we have enough evidence to, to, to say that. Sure. And if you're interested in data and you're somebody who responds to data by actually changing behavior, then I think you could, you know, a CGM for two to four weeks. Um, and I, and I think that's probably going to be enough because yeah most people have a routine and they eat the same the foods same again thing, and again yeah. and again, right? So how many times do I need to see that a midnight, a bag of Oreos at midnight increases my blood sugar? Probably only once, right? I don't need to yeah. see that for six months in a row. Bottle, um, and then I can make a on a Wednesday night, not a yeah. good idea. <laughs> exactly. And and then you can make then you can make a decision about that. So I think a, a short period of time and then making adjustments, uh, you know, ab absolutely fine. It's just this sort of, you know, longer term yeah. use that I think is unnecessary. But but interestingly, and in, in athletes in particular, um, and there's one one CGM company uh, that focuses on this group levels. Uh, there, there may be others, but they focus on keeping blood sugar higher during you know during athletic uh, bouts or performance because the and again the evidence isn't great, but it, when they've put CGM on athletes during some kind of uh, race or something else, particularly in endurance athletes, mm -hmm. higher blood sugars during um, during exercise are associated with improved performance. So you have to then kind of unpick this. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that high blood sugar is bad and blood sugar spikes are bad, but if I want to perform as an athlete, maybe I need to keep shoveling down the Oreos to keep my blood sugar high during the performance bout. And like, is that better or worse for long-term health? Uh, I don't know. So that's so like, there's all these complex things that we don't really fully understand yet. Uh, absolutely. And you know, circling all the way back to even just straightforward blood tests that someone would get at their doc's office, like the fasting glucose, the HbA1c, like it, uh, are those things that you obviously we focus on? You know, for you, how much weight are we putting in those versus obviously a lot of specialty tests now people are paying a lot of money for? Um, mm. What are your thoughts? The more time I've spent doing this, the more I've just really gone back to the basics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. to, to, to be honest, like I've done all these tests, all the urine organic acids tests, bunch of stool tests whole bunch of fancy metabolomic tests and like expensive blood tests. And I just, I'm not convinced they've ever really helped uh, mm. that much. Um, when I've done, so I've done some analyses uh, using population data uh, sets from the US and the UK. And if I look at like, what is it that predicts mortality or cognitive functional dementia? HbA1c is a, is a great predictor. Blood pressure is a great predictor. Um, you know, uh, basic hormone levels are incredibly important, both in men and women. So women are, you know, about two thirds of those with Alzheimer's disease are female and hormonal status, like during and after the menopausal transition is very important for risk. Uh, but, you know, basic estrogen levels, testosterone levels, like this is all stuff you can get on a, on a, on a basic blood panel. Yeah. Uh, you know, red, um, red blood cell metrics from a full blood count, uh, with differential, you know, lots of stuff that, that sort of is, is uh, well associated with, with outcomes. So like, that's where I've, I've really ended up. Um, and you know, some people, you know, maybe if you're in a really niche case and you just can't really figure out what's going on, then sometimes, some advanced testing can kind of give you some hypotheses to kind of throw at the wall. And I've, I've done that too, but at sort of a, a large scale, I think, you know, really the basics probably give you most of what you need. Yeah. I've definitely shared that arc as well of, of years ago, really thinking all these tests, I'm going to get an extra layer. We're going to go deeper down the rabbit hole. And then over time you end up just coming back to these tried and tested biomarkers that really yeah. are telling you more of the story and they're, 
more cost effective and we can perhaps run them more frequently in certain individuals and it just ends up being you know a little bit or a lot more reliable so it's a, it's a challenge yeah. i think even today obviously because we can test for so many things um if we kind of zoom back up to thirty thousand feet and you know, obviously we've been talking about the brain which dovetails into things like longevity which is a growing and growing space i'm just wondering mm -hmm. how you think about things in terms of longevity we talk there's groups out there you know we're trying to live until 120 um you know my old neighbor i think lived till about 92 he was a farmer mm -hmm. across the road and just one day you know that was it for for frank um yeah and so yeah interesting interested to hear your thoughts on that yeah so the longevity arena is something that i'm very interested in in too uh absolutely and again i i, I think i come across and maybe I'm a, still a bit of a luddite uh, in the in this arena. I think there's there's a lot of promise from a pharmaceutical standpoint. You know, I'm very interested in um, NAD precursors. Uh, rapamycin, I think, is 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 and will be the gold standard once we really sort of see it in some in in some sort of larger studies. You know, metformin potentially, although I I worry about metformin inhibiting responses to training. Because there's a couple of studies on that mm -hmm. that you get less muscle gain or strength gain and less improvements in VO2 max uh, when you train and you're taking metformin. Uh, so I don't recommend that to people who live an active lifestyle. I also don't think they need it. Mm -hmm. um, but when you when you sort of like look at the the core factors that seem to be associated with lo longevity, and and I, and I definitely more of a health span rather than a lifespan person right i you know i'm i'd be happy to be 92 functional and independent and then just i'm i'm that's done it. the next day like that's that live long drop dead i think uh that's a mark sisson quote maybe uh some, some, something like that rather than living um, till 130 and holding on for dear life yeah exactly and and that you know and i've worked you know as a doctor in in elderly care uh, wards in in London. That was my first one of my first jobs after I graduated from from med school, and we're really good at helping people cling on. But mm -hmm. a, a lot of the time, then maybe not even aware of that. And if they were aware, they probably wouldn't want us to to do that for them. So so I think that's something we can certainly improve um, uh, in general in, in in healthcare. Absolutely. Um, but when you look at the factors that are associated with long term brain health. Um, sports performance, longevity, health span, whatever you want to call it, like these core factors just become important again and again. And they are uh, movement quality uh, and like muscle mass in particular, as you get older is incredibly important. Um, you know, social connection, uh, maybe I'm going to add cognitive challenge in there as well, but you know, diet quality, uh, sleep, some kind of stress uh, mitigation. And with sleep, I also mean like circadian rhythm management, right? Mm. Which, you know, which is basically just be like, awake when it's light outside and asleep when it's dark outside roughly um yeah rather and than so, like you're, uh, with the tablet or the phone in bed social media all that stuff yeah yeah exactly but so like those core things right movement sleep stress uh social connection diet i think if you nail those things down you know 80 20 or whatever you're already in so much of a, 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 a an improved position compared to the average population. Like just those things, and again, not even optimized or perfected, which I think could actually take you in the other direction if you're hyper-focused on that and that's all you think about, right? That's probably going to give you 20 good years, like not even hyperbole. Um, so yes, I, I think all the, the drugs are great and like not everybody, like not everybody's going to do the things that I would recommend in terms of, you know, putting on some muscle mass and getting good quality sleep and eating a, a nutritious diet. Uh, and, you know, and then if you're trying to decrease the total societal burden, maybe that's when you then need to rely on pharmaceutics. Like I have to acknowledge that's, that's a potential, sure. but if you nail down the basics, I think the, the, the potential benefits are, are massive. Yeah. I mean, very well put. And the social connection part is really interesting to me on a couple of fronts. Obviously one of them being just how connected we are with, with technology these days and the focus on the individual which is you know great up to a sort of certain point of if it's individual all the time we seem to be losing a little bit more social connection ironically mm. um because we see obviously with some of the data you know the more time we're spending in front of screens the less time with with individuals out in the community team sport all the rest of it um how do we start to balance that part out if we have a whole you know a, a generation coming up with that more 
online, more connected. Obviously, there's likely an aspect that we can we can galvanize this, but this idea of being part of a greater whole seems to be a little less of a focus today than it has in perhaps previous generations. Hmm. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's um, a broad question there, but it is. It is. I mean, it's it's critically important, and I think um, there's this focus on so again in this sort of like modern westernized societies and i I guess is sort of america the usa has been like the center of this is this this focus on individualism and you know individual freedoms individual success um and i think that's kind of pulled us away from what we are as a species which is inherently social and everybody needs to feel wanted to feel loved to feel needed uh, to have purpose and meaning. Um, and when we don't have those things, it, you know, and even if it's just like associ- associational, right, we're, we're not feeling these things, we're not experiencing these things. You know, there's a whole body of literature now that says, well, actually, we can explain this in terms of uh, immune responses, autonomic changes. There's this whole bunch of mechanisms that then explain why you experience earlier death, you know, a greater number of chronic diseases. Um, and it's probably because we just like have this basic requirement to be needed and wanted and loved and and feel useful. And that's essentially what social connection gives us. Um, And there are obviously benefits to, to social media. It allows, you know, for Mm -hmm. some people, it allows them to get connected Connected, to groups to that they otherwise wouldn't. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if you, and you see this a lot in people who start to change their behavior or lifestyle environment for health related reasons, right. If you go on a specific diet, or take up a, a new type of exercise, yeah. right? You might have to find a group online to support you in that because you're, you're, you know, the people around you aren't necessarily that interested. And, and I think that's that, that's great. Um, right, yeah, uh, yeah th- th- there's a lot of benefit there. There are there are some data that say though that sort of like the vol like the volume of your connections isn't helpful. It's really the quality of your connections. Right. So you can have just three or four really strong social connections. And that's probably much better than being connected to thousands of people uh, on, on, on Facebook. So there's a definitely a, a quality is, is more important than, than quantity. Um, so it probably then doesn't take much. So if you're, if you're trying to sort of, you know, balance your long-term risks, it probably doesn't take much to then foster some, you know, just a couple of small, strong connections and they probably can be remote. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we saw some of that at the beginning of the pandemic. There was this for a short period of time. It didn't last, but there was a, a short period of time where the population seemed more resilient to the pandemic and the lockdowns than we thought they would be because there was this uptick in reaching out to family members and friends yeah. and communicating over Zoom. And there was this kind of like we're in this together, sort of uh, blitzkrieg mentality. Um, it, and it did it didn't last because we sort of, you know, got counterbalanced by sort of the, the stresses. But but I think you can foster that even online if, if you have to, though there's probably some additional benefits from from that it being in person because you know, as you get older, it gets you out of the house, it requires you to keep some mobility and function and that kind of stuff if you're like out there interacting with the world. Um so so I think you know, just just probably like small concerted efforts are probably enough. Um, and although I, I do like the idea of tying many of these things together, right? So if you yeah. join a dance group, um, you're dancing, you're interacting socially, um, and you're sort of, you you, so you have the cognitive challenge, the physical challenge and social interaction all in one place. Yeah. So I think you can kind of like tick off multiple boxes in, in one go, if, if you're sort of willing to get out there and try some of these things. I was going to say, when you look at the list, I mean, social connection sort of embedded in almost the exercise language, music, piece, oh, yeah. even sensory input. So yeah, you start getting that amplifying benefit likely, which is, which is pretty awesome. Exactly. Um, in terms of, you know, progressions here, you know, when you look down the road in terms of your work or in this area, you know, what are the next things in the next five years that you're excited about? So uh, in this arena, what I'd really like to see you know, and, and, you know, may, maybe I can contribute to it directly with my own research in, in some ways, but also more broadly, what, what I want to do is better test the idea that cognitive demand really is this critical factor mm-hmm. in terms of long-term 
risk of cognitive decline because I think we have some great evidence for it. But I've I've also you know when I've sent this paper around to people, they've said two things. One, which is that don't we already know this? Um, and 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 the other is, and the other is like, how could you be sure? Like how how do you know this is true? And it's funny because both of those things can't be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so it's probably we're probably somewhere in in the middle of that. So something maybe in you know some of it probably has to be done in animal models, right? So I'd be interested to know in the setting of some of these other risk factors, uh, and they could be genetic, environmental exposures, nutrient deficiencies, uh, lack of exercise, lack of social connection. So that creates like a stress in stress response in animals. If we then challenge them cognitively, does do you still get beneficial adaptations even in the face of those stresses? Because then that would still put cognitive challenge at like the at the primary end, which mm-hmm. is what I think may be true. But so I can test that in the lab, and that's something that I that I hope to do. But then in humans, what we've seen so far is that when we've instituted some of these things, we've often done multiple things at the same time. So the the finger study is a is a classic trial where they changed a whole bunch of stuff around, uh, you know, uh, cognitive challenges and, you know, movement and diet. Um, and some of Dale Bredesen's work has done the same. You, you sort of like identify what, where some individual can make changes and you do all of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and including cognitive challenge with, with brain HQ, but that doesn't tell you where, you know, this sort of fits in the, in the hierarchy of, of what's most important. Um, so there are some novel like clinical trial methodologies, uh, things like smart trials, uh, systematic multi-assignment um, randomized trials, where basically you take people and you would randomize them to maybe like four interventions. So maybe one group walks and yeah. one group does brain training or you know learns a language and one group improves their diet um, and one group focuses on their sleep. And then you follow them for a period of time and you see how, you do, how they do and then you randomize them again. And then you you stack them up on top of each other, and then you can see well where does mm-hmm. you know where does each one affect the other, or like where does one person respond to one, not the other? And then from that, rather than having to do massive trials where you have these you know huge groups each doing something different, you know within the same individuals in a smaller group, you can figure out well where does cognitive demand really fit into the hierarchy? And I think that's what's needed, and we do propose that kind of idea uh, in the paper as well. So. That's kind of where, you know, in this arena, that's, that's that's what I'd really like to see in the next, you know, five or 10 years. Well, I mean, it's definitely a fascinating read. And I love, particularly for practitioners, docs, and obviously even the clients, athletes, coaches who are aging, you know, flipping the script around, just being stuck into a certain outcome. And mm-hmm. now saying, okay, we've got all these potential strategies here, the exercise, language, music, social connection, sensory inputs, like where does that individual want to start? obviously mm. so much more proactive and to be able to then, you know, as you outlined in the paper, see some of these changes is pretty, uh, pretty tremendous to set, sort of sum things up for people. Again, if we have a coach or a performance staff member or anyone listening in who's 50, 60, 70, and all of a sudden they feel like, Hey, I've got to do more to help support my brain. Obviously we've outlined these broad categories. Is there a place mm. that you like to start with, with patients or clients? So, you know, I'll assume that some of the other basics are taken care of, like you know, you're getting a minimal effective dose of movement and that, that kind of stuff. You know, in general, I like to focus on easy wins and low low hanging fruit. Nice. Uh, some people don't like the phrase low hanging fruit because they're like, well, if it's low hanging, that means you haven't picked it for a reason. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's overthinking maybe, a little bit, <laughs> right? I think that overthinks it. But so so like, you know, if we're thinking about the cognitive demand side, um, then you know, what is it that you could easily do that you enjoy and that you have time for? And like, that's, that's where I'd start. So, you know, maybe it's even you just like download Duolingo and you try it out and then you realize, oh, you know, I enjoy this, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to join uh, a language or conversation group. And then, then you can start to do some of the other stuff. And so whatever it is that that's, you know, that skill or that thing that you've always wanted to do, but you've never had time for, nice. you know, remember that, you know, for, for this kind of challenge, you're, you're really thinking about things that um, you can work hard on for like 20 or 30 minutes and then it gets tiring, right? Okay. It's it's kind of, it's the same thing when, when we talked earlier about, you know, uh, if you, you feel busy all day, you feel like you're challenging your brain, but you're not really, you're just doing the yeah. same stuff again and again. And, and, and that's, not, that's not the same thing. And I, I'd liken that to like junk volume in terms of exercise. Like it's just a whole bunch of stuff, but you're never really, but the stimulus isn't there. (laughs) Exactly. You're never driving adaptation. And so, 
that it's the same with these kinds of things. We, we think that humans, you know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes is really the amount of time you can spend sort of like pushing the boundary of your current skills. And, and then you need time to recover and adapt. Uh, so it, it's that it's that kind of thing. So I would suggest that most people have 20 minutes, three or four times a week to work on a skill that, that they enjoy. Like, and again, so it's like, it's the same as exercise the minimum effective dose isn't that much. And it's eminently doable by most people. So don't think, right. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. Don't, don't think that you have to like suddenly go into like this immersive all day, everyday course in order to do it. No, just these, these little chunks constantly sort of like pushing the boundaries of your current skill level. That's exactly what, what I think people can do. And again, it can be anything that, that you'd like to do or anything that you'd enjoy. Awesome. Uh, definitely great tips and uh oftentimes comes back to that scheduling doesn't it for people of like on sunday night or in the weekend or monday morning actually putting those blocks in your in your schedule to actually yeah. do those things because we all know that otherwise the calendar kind of gets swallowed up so amazing tommy listen really appreciate your time we're going to include links to the paper a fascinating read you know where could people stay connected with all your tremendous work and, and keep up with what you're doing uh, the, uh, the best place is probably Instagram, uh, at Dr. Tommy Wood, uh, on Instagram. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if I publish a, a new paper or something like that, I'll us I'll usually post it there. Um, awesome. it may, it may just be pictures of like my dogs, um, or go. what I'm eating to like random. If you're interested in a bunch of science and boxes, then, uh, Instagram is probably the place to, to come. Fantastic. We'll definitely include those in the show notes. Listen, Tommy, appreciate uh, appreciate the time, and uh, I wanted to pick your brain around concussion, but I guess we'll have to uh, have to do another one sometime soon. Yeah, so sounds great. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.